Greetings, and welcome to Magical Medical Tour. I'm Dr. Glenn Wallman, and I will be your medical guide today as we travel through the healthcare galaxy each week looking for ways to achieve optimal health. I am sending wishes to my co-host, Christina Susama, who won't be with us today, unfortunately. She's out doing things for the rest of the world, as always. But I am very fortunate today to have uh, one of my good friends and colleagues uh, who I have known for a while. His name is Dr. Ken Kosick. He's a professor at UCSB in the neuroscience research. He's the administrator, director, and founder of CFIT, which we will talk about in a little while. He's an author and international speaker. There's a lot for us to talk about today. And I would like to get into it right away. So, Ken, welcome to Magical Medical Tour. Thank you very much, Glenn. It's a pleasure to be here. Excellent. How are you feeling? Uh, pretty good. It's, I'm really uh, happy to talk to you again. It's been a little while since we've had a chance to chat. It has been a little while. I'm looking forward to this. So I want to first start out figuring how you got into neurosciences and how you got into the healing specialty that you have gotten into. So tell us a little about that, please. Yeah, sure. Um, well, um, I, I'm trained as a, um, as a neurologist, an MD neurologist, and I spend most of my time um, doing research on the brain. Um, and also I'm interested in, in people that have uh, questions or problems uh, related to their thinking and their memory. Um, and the... Um, the, the route uh, by which I got there was um, maybe not quite as uh, direct as uh, some people. I'm, I'm not one of these uh, people who knew from the time they were in uh, grade school that they wanted to be a doctor. Um, I um, was really interested in questions about the mind and uh, the brain, and, um, uh, and there are a lot of uh, ways in which uh, people try to understand those issues. And, I, and for me, one of the ways um, actually is the arts. Uh, for me, a major interest of mine was um, in literature, and I actually um, uh, pursued literature as an undergraduate, uh, and also even did a master's degree in literature and English literature. Um, but gradually realized that um, the uh, that that when one adopts that as a profession, uh, you really spend most of your time uh, talking about the critics and not the primary work itself. And um, so I um, drifted. Uh, to something a little more um, in the scientific realm and um, found myself in uh, medical school. Uh, and as I went through medical school, I, I, there were a lot of, um, my interests uh, shifted a lot. Um, uh, but uh, as I got toward the end of medical school, uh, doing a, um, a rotation in, um, in a hospital and seeing patients with neurological conditions um, it made it very clear to me that that was the specialty um, that I wanted to go into. You always felt like the mind was the most important, huh? I, I've always had um, a very long-standing interest in that um, very uh, ill-defined space between the brain and the mind. Sure. I want to uh, talk to you. We're going to have a lot of discussion today about diseases of the mind related mainly to memory, but I think it's important for all of us to have kind of a working definition of what memory is, and also maybe a little scientific 
information as to how memory actually occurs. And I can't think of anyone better to explain this to us than you. Well, memory is clearly uh, a very, very complex uh, concept and has many layers and many facets. Um, we can think about uh, different types of memory. For instance, um, the way you remember a story uh, that somebody might tell you or the way you remember your own story, what happened to you during the day, um, is called episodic memory. And that's a very different type of memory than um, say what we call, uh, technically what we call procedural memory, in which uh, people remember how to ride a bicycle or how to play tennis. These are memories of uh, skills. And uh, there are other memories beyond that, uh, things like uh, what we might call a kind of semantic memory or the memory of uh, words that we have that are um, stored a little differently. So these different types of memory actually are encoded in the brain in different places. And it's possible to uh, lose one type of memory. For instance, uh, people with Alzheimer's disease will often lose what we call episodic memory, that is what people tell them and the nature of their story. But they, uh, for a long time in the disease process, they may retain what's uh, this procedural memory. They still may be able to play golf or have others, you know, retain some skills. So uh, memory is uh, different types. It's encoded differently. And then it gets even more um, uh, hard to understand when you go down to the actual cellular level and try to understand uh, how are specific memories actually encoded within individual brain cells. And that is something that um, we really don't have a clear understanding of yet. Uh, we believe it has something to do with um, the way uh, synapses change and the way they show uh, what we call plasticity, that is their ability to change with experience. And um, this is a very active area in neuroscience right now. You're doing work in that, aren't you? That um, So I, I uh, wear two hats. Uh, one is at the university where I study exactly that, plasticity in the brain and how synapses change. And then a more uh, clinical hat uh, where we uh, work in our brain fitness center to help people maintain a very um, active cognitive uh, brain style, brain, uh, keep their brain very active and healthy, and to reduce their risk for developing um, age-related um, brain diseases, such as Alzheimer's disease. <clears throat> yeah, I th we're going to talk about that a little, the CFIT and how we protect our brain and everything else. But as we move forward uh, today in our discussion, I want to now talk about the different types of memory loss that we have. I know sometimes we're just forgetful because we're so busy. Uh, like, for example, Christina never remembers the name of this show. So I wonder <laughs> if, if, if that's because she's so busy or, and her mind is so full of things uh, to help people and help the world, or is it an age-related uh, memory loss? or then we talk about dementia and we talk about Alzheimer's. And I think when, when I speak with people that don't study these things, they're all lumped together in some way. Can you give us a little breakdown so that when someone hears the word dementia, are, should they be thinking Alzheimer's or should they be thinking age-related memory loss? Give us some thoughts on each of these so that we can have uh, something in our mind that will 
let us know what, that we're all speaking the same language? Uh, yeah, Glenn, that's a really great question and one that I'm uh, frequently asked. I think it's um, an area of confusion. So uh, let's start with the, um, the one end of the spectrum where things are um, quite serious and then move back into the kind of memory loss that's simply associated with normal aging. Um, on the more serious end of the spectrum, uh, there is this um, word out there called dementia. And um, dementia is just a, a symptom. Uh, the most common cause of dementia, of that symptom, is Alzheimer's disease. Dementia means really an impairment of thinking, an impairment of cognitive function. And cognitive function is broken down into uh, memory and uh, ability to do calculations, ability to navigate, to find your car in a parking lot, for instance. Um, there are many, many facets of uh, cognition, and they become impaired uh, with dementia. And dementia has many, many causes. As I said, Alzheimer's is the leading cause of dementia. But there are others, and one of the reasons that people should probably um, be evaluated medically if they are uh, concerned about a family member with um, some cognitive impairment is because we want to um, identify the cause, the underlying cause of the dementia. Rarely, there are some dementias that can be uh, very effectively treated. And if a person is developing some uh, dementia and we find a treatable cause, then um, it's something that should be um, treated quite aggressively. Um, on the other hand, many of the causes of dementia, including Alzheimer's, are unfortunately not yet um, curable, uh, and the treatments we have are not very satisfying. Um, however, even in those cases, some knowledge of what um, the diagnosis is is important for a person's um, sense of, uh, of um, uh, just so that they have a sense of what's going on in their um, in, in their life. Now. Uh, we, um, uh, you know, people don't get Alzheimer's just suddenly, overnight. It's a very gradual, really, uh, emerging condition. Um, there are slow, inexorable changes that take place um, in this uh, steady kind of downhill course. So when Alzheimer's is just at its earliest stages, it can be very hard to diagnose. And in fact, as your question implied, um, there are many people who have normal uh, age-related uh, memory issues, you know, the tip-of-the-tongue phenomena, forgetting names, um, your co-host forgetting the name of the show. There are uh, lots of us who, um, as we get it uh, a little further along in years, will uh, forget stuff. And uh, the job of um, a good, uh, say, uh, a good psychologist or a good neurologist if a person is worried about this, is to be able to distinguish between the two. Um, we are very good at making that distinction because there are, when, when a person goes through all the, the testing, we usually get a fairly clear answer whether the person's memory loss is over the line. That is, it's a little more grave than it should be for the person's age. Or we can sometimes reassure the person that, you know, yes, uh, you, you forgot the name of the show, but you know you're you're just you, you, maybe you're overwhelmed and trying to remember so many things, and maybe it's not the highest priority on your list to just remember that. And um, we um, then can reassure the person that their memory loss is um, uh, that they perceive is not really um, terribly serious. 
we're we're going to talk a little bit. Thank you for that. That was very good. I when I speak with a lot of people, they always think that dementia and Alzheimer's seem to be different things, but uh, I think you tied it together very nicely there. Let's talk about uh, some of the research, and I'd like to, I know you travel to uh, South America, Colombia region periodically. Yeah. Uh, there's a reason for that, and, and there's a connection to Alzheimer's there, isn't there? There sure is. Uh, this is one of my major research interests. Um, in um, a part of Colombia called uh, Antioquia, there is a, uh, a very, very large family that has um, a, a gene, a, muta a, mu a gene mutation uh, in many of the family members that is uh, responsible for causing Alzheimer's disease. And that uh, form of Alzheimer's disease comes on at a very early age. Uh, so, the Alzheimer's disease uh, in this very large family begins at around age 49, uh, obviously very, very young. Um, and many, uh, I often hear people say uh, that uh, part of the message we want to get out there is, is that the face of Alzheimer's disease is not always an old person, that some of these uh, familial cases um, are, um, all of the familial, familial cases are as serious as any of those that affect elders. Um, this uh, family in Colombia, however, is particularly informative uh, because um, I'm, uh, I'm calling them a family, but this uh, family uh, is, uh, has about over, well, it has over 3,000 members. Um, <laughs> that's a family. Third, that's a family. Second, third, fourth cousins. The family is so large they don't even know each other. And the only reason we know that they're a family at all is because uh, all these different branches of the family in small villages through the countryside of Antioquia share the same rare mutation. So somewhere uh, back many generations ago, there was a single individual who um, developed this mutation, and uh, his offspring, his children, his grandchildren, his great-grandchildren, the, the families um, um, enlarged. Uh, there are very large families down there, often 12 or 15 children. So the family expanded rapidly. So they're the largest family in the world with um, this genetic uh, inherited form of Alzheimer's. And um, the reason it's begun to capture um, international attention is because um, we can, um, um, the family um, is very interested, of course, in trying to find some cure, some solution. And um, because we know Who's going to get the disease there? Those that have the mutation, and we know when they're going to get it. Um, they would like to participate in a, a prevention trial. That is, to take a medication that may be um, still uh, that that would be that's known to be safe in people, but not yet shown to be efficacious, and to use that medicine and test it and see if it can help um, uh, delay the onset of their Alzheimer's disease. They're very eager for this, and it's something that um, we're now about to um, try to implement. It will be the first uh, Alzheimer prevention trial in the world. Wow, congratulations on that, and the whole world, I guess, is watching. Yeah, indeed it is, and uh, there'll probably be a lot more announcements about this as um, it gets closer to the start date. So let's, let's talk about, for a few minutes, 
of uh, a normal situation. Families get together with their families and suddenly they recognize that dad or mom or grandpa or somebody is just not starting to remember and everybody takes it okay, but they don't quite know what to do. What should people look for in a family member that should bring them to uh, the doctor, such as yourself, to get tested? Um, there's a number of ways in which this problem can present. Uh, sometimes people overlook um, these smaller issues, say a person beginning to repeat themselves more, because uh, people often do that, and we don't know, we don't always know if it's normal or abnormal. So people may overlook that. Uh, they may overlook the fact that um, the, uh, uh, say, an older person in the family has uh, stopped taking care of the family finances, and now his uh, wife has taken that over. It's um, something that just happens gradually, and people may not notice it. Uh, and the story I very frequently hear is that um, while there were these gradual changes, uh, the family sometimes overlooks it, and then one day... Um, he may go out to uh, the corner grocery store to pick up some groceries, and um, after not returning, uh, three hours later, it's, um, uh, the family has to call the police, and um, the individual is found wandering you know, miles away in some other neighborhood, unable to find um, his way home. Uh, this is a very dramatic presentation. It doesn't always happen that way, um, but... Um, as, uh, but it can, um, but it can happen. That kind of uh, precipitous uh, presentation can certainly occur. More commonly is the kind of thing I just mentioned, where there are these gradual changes that the family said, "This is just a little too much. Why did um, he forget those appointments that he used to remember? Why is he no longer interested in, um, you know, reading the way he was before? Or if he's reading something, why does he not?" recall are able to discuss who the you know presidential candidates are or you know things that perhaps a person needs to know and have at their fingertips those are all some of the early warnings when when uh, family members do recognize that sometimes it's very difficult for uh, the, to convince the person that's having the memory loss how, how do they go about doing that and say, we think you need to go to the doctor? No, I don't have any problems. I'm fine. How do, how do right. they go about convincing someone in your experience? Um, yeah, this is uh, a, a lot of people who are developing memory trouble, maybe even developing Alzheimer's disease, um, don't have insight into the problem, and they refuse to see a doctor or to even discuss it. In fact, uh, sometimes discussing the problem with such an individual makes them angry. Uh, so it's, well, it probably is important to be seen medically and to try to find out if there is some treatable cause that can be uh, addressed um, in more standard medical approaches. Uh, so I think it is important. Very often the family has to um, some, take the person to a doctor saying, um, you know, we're just making a routine visit, or you should just go in for your annual checkup and uh, try to downplay the fact that um, the family may be worried about um, a cognitive condition, memory trouble, um, because this would only stir up the person. They may not just, they might not want to admit it, or they might want to talk about it, 
uh, and it would only cause more trouble to try to uh, force the issue on the individual. On the other hand, there are some people who have incredible insights into their own mm. minds. And um, I have actually seen individuals who told me that, uh, they would say, Doc, I think I'm uh, getting Alzheimer's disease. And I would test them, and I would talk to them for an hour or two, and I would say, you know, um, I, I don't think so. I think you're fine. And occasionally, doesn't always happen, um, the person is right and I'm wrong. Uh, there's something that they recognize about their own thinking that um, led them to a more uh, insightful kind of viewpoint than uh, I was able to obtain in a medical interview. Oh, that's interesting. Uh, it, it seems like throughout the history of our species, we've always been able to accept physical ailments, but not mental ailments as easily. It's easy to go into the doctor if you break an arm, but it's not as easy to go to the doctor if you're having cognitive uh, defects. So, okay, Isn't that now... True? Yes. yes, I agree. Uh, now, the family has finally gotten the loved one to agree to go to the doctor. There, There's lots of new things. You mentioned the uh, the specific gene and maybe there are some other markers that uh, we can identify with new technologies. When somebody goes to the doctor, of course the doctor knows what tests to order, but how does the family know that this is the right doctor, that they're going to order the right tests, and what are those tests that they should be looking at and have some right. understanding about? Right. Um, so, you know, unlike a lot of fields of medicine, the uh, diagnosis of um, Alzheimer's and an approach to this whole problem is not rocket science. It's um, not nearly as complex as um, requiring a surgical procedure or a lot of other things that physicians have to do. The, um, the, the best approach is to find someone who has uh, some degree of experience, who is, has the time to sit down and take a very detailed history, uh, physical examination, and before any tests are done at all, uh, the physician at that point should have a pretty good idea of whether or not this is starting to look like uh, Alzheimer's or some other form of dementia. Now, we do go on to get some tests because we want to make sure that there's no uh, treatable cause of dementia there. So we always check things like uh, thyroid levels and some vitamin levels. We like to get a, a kind of a scan of the brain to be sure there's not a any kind of growth going on there, whether it's a, a malignant growth or a non-malignant growth, something uh, pressing on the brain. There are a number of tests that we do just to make sure that there's nothing else going on that uh, can be treated. And then beyond that, uh, there are now uh, emerging these um, what we call biomarkers, and they are ways in which we can begin to approach a more definitive diagnosis of Alzheimer's disease. Usually, uh, when a physician has uh, finished his or her work uh, with a good history and physical and some routine tests, we come to the conclusion that it is very likely to be Alzheimer's, but until recently, it could not be proved until a person died and we can look at the brain tissue under a microscope. The definitive proof was always looking at the brain tissue microscopically. However, um, what's emerging now, these biomarkers are 
ways to image the brain in which we can directly see um, the what we call the stigmata of the disease. That means the penile plaques and neurofibrillary tangles. These are the, the two uh, what we call lesions, the two problems uh, that uh, occur in the brain of Alzheimer patients. And now we can begin to see one of them, the penile plaques, with some very novel um, imaging techniques. And that is helping to make a diagnosis of Alzheimer's we can also do, if the, if the case is particularly difficult, particularly problematic, um, there's another test in which a person can take some, uh, do a spinal tap and take some uh, cerebrospinal fluid and measure a couple things in the spinal fluid that would also point toward a diagnosis. Neither the brain imaging nor the, um, the spinal tap are required or necessary. A good physician should be able to uh, get a pretty definitive view of what's going on. Those kinds of tests are, uh, while they're increasingly um, informative, they're not necessarily um, needed by every single individual who has these complaints. So now we've got uh, a diagnosis. Uh, it's a, either a pre-senile dementia or it is an Alzheimer's or it is a dementia. It's not something that we could change the thyroid uh, function or give more vitamins or operate on a tumor. What are what are the, what's the armamentarium that we have to uh, help people either delay, as you said before, I don't think we we can cure yet, but I guess we can delay, prevent. What do we have working for us now? Well, we we do have a couple um, drugs that have been approved by the FDA as. Um, a treatment for Alzheimer's disease. Uh, they are all, uh, all these, um, the currently approved drugs are, um, you know, I, I put them in the category of something like Band-Aids because they will uh, patch up the symptoms for a little while, but the person still continues to decline. Um, they just, uh, it just pushes back the clock by a little bit in some people. So uh, in some people, we don't see any effect at all. Uh, so the, the, the drugs that we have available right now are not particularly satisfying. Um, we do use them because there are a few people who show some modest response. Uh, for example, I saw a gentleman who um, was unable to tie his shoes, and on some of these medications, he was able to tie his shoes. He still had many other problems, and it never didn't cure him, but, he, uh, but his family was very grateful for that little bit of a boost for a short time. Um, so we have these FDA-approved drugs, and we also, um, because it's uh, sad to say, no one has ever uh, been cured uh, of Alzheimer's disease. That is, there is, um, you know, even in cancer, there are spontaneous remissions that's never occurred in Alzheimer's. So we also believe that um, quality of life is extremely important. There needs to really be an understanding of, of the what skills are lost and what skills are retained so that uh, people can treat an Alzheimer patient um, in a very uh, humane manner and uh, allow them to enjoy the uh, remaining years that they have. I know in my dad's case, uh, he was starting to get dementia and they put him on some medications, uh, the, the ones that, some of the ones that you had uh, alluded to, and we saw that 
he wasn't having many changes, much improvement, but he was getting side effects from them. And as a family, we came together and said, we'd rather let him decline. And he was part of the discussion also. He was right. able to fit into this. But the side effects he was having, we all said, let's kick you off this. You're too miserable on this. So we took him off that. Um, uh, I think you made a wise decision. The, uh, the, most people do not get side effects on these medications, but a significant uh, percentage do. Uh, it's not. It's, 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 it's relatively... Uh, it's not a majority of people, but those that do the side effects, usually their gastrointestinal, are very uh, are very difficult. And the drug, I, I agree with your decision. Yeah, thank you. Uh, so, aside from the Western treatments of the medications, you you work with with a group, uh, an institute. It was formerly called C Fit, and it was interesting right. for me because of the concept fit. Uh, I wonder, as part of a prevention system, do you ever talk to people about staying fit in healthy ways uh, with nutrition and exercise and stress management? Do you ever use uh, therapies like acupuncture or any various uh, other alternative treatments? Well, uh, one of the most, uh, I think, um, important things that we do right now, uh, because there is no uh, cure for Alzheimer's. Is we are um, in our uh, brain fitness center here. Um, we are very, very uh, much focused on trying to reduce the risk of the disease. We know right now, um, if someone um, uh, is worried about getting that disease, they basically have uh, two options. They can uh, sit around and hope that uh, a drug appears that can cure their disease before they get it. Uh, and um, that um, I hope that happens. But uh, I think people should be a little bit more proactive than that and take advantage of all the risk reduction measures that we know about. And if, um, and, and, and we do know that there are uh, some very important uh, risks that people have in their middle age that will make the likelihood of getting Alzheimer's disease much greater. So in my view, the most important thing we can do right now, short of finding a cure, a medication, short of that, the most important thing we can do right now is when a person is in their middle ages, uh, that is in their 40s, 50s, 60s, uh, even older, they should uh, really focus on reducing the risk factors, which I will uh, mention if, uh, if you like that. I would love that, and it's interesting yeah. to notice that the range of the middle ages increases as our ages increase. Uh, that's absolutely true. Um, I think <laughs> um, we, um, we, we we like to, um, you know, we, you know how people say, uh, you know, 70 is the new uh, 40 or something. It's, <laughs> um, it's, it's, middle ages uh, seem to be extending all the way to the end of life. Um, <laughs> that's great. So... Uh, so, so the, 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 what we focus on in our uh, center here is called the Cottage Center for Brain Fitness, uh, formerly known as CFIT, uh, which stood for Cognitive Fitness and Innovative Therapies. Um, we have um, we divide the types of risks that people have um, into two categories. One are medical risks, and the other are lifestyle risks. All of these risks I'm going to talk about have a lot of evidence in the literature. 
They're all things that are based on research and good science. And they're all actually quite simple. In fact, most of them are not even going to be a surprise. So the medical risks are uh, lack of control over your blood pressure, lack of control over your cholesterol, and lack of control over blood glucose, the sugar. And therefore, we advise that people should really know their numbers. Um, it doesn't mean just taking your blood pressure once. It means taking it a few times and being sure that it is really at an acceptable level, that is below uh, 120 over 80. Even mild hypertension can be a risk for um, uh, dementia later in life. So while these factors, uh, the cholesterol, the blood pressure, the glucose, have long been known to be risks for cardiovascular disease, we now know that they are also risks for Alzheimer's disease. And if one was not motivated to control them before, they should certainly uh, be now that we know the risks for Alzheimer's are uh, also part of the uh, reason to do so. The next um, large area are the lifestyle risks. And there are five for which the evidence is uh, quite good. By far and away, the top of the list, the one for which the evidence is the best, is exercise. Um, again, not a surprise to most people, but getting a decent amount of exercise on a daily basis can um, benefit your overall health and also protect against the development of Alzheimer's disease. Number two is good nutrition. Um, here we know about, say, the Mediterranean diet, for instance. There are a number of uh, nutritional, um, healthy nutritional measures that we can implement. I would say if you have to boil this down to one thing, um, it's really to stay away from a lot of the, um, the fatty, high-caloric food that you get in uh, the fast food chains and uh, sometimes at home or in restaurants. That, uh, that's, the, uh, that, that's what people really have to avoid. Uh, and um, while Mediterranean diets are good, I am sure there are many other diets uh, that are filled with the antioxidants, like in a Korean diet, that will probably be shown to be equally good. The third one is to uh, keep your brain uh, cognitively active, that is, uh, mental challenges for the brain. And people often um, think that that's simply a matter of uh, doing uh, crossword puzzles in Sudoku. It's a lot more than that. It's really uh, making sure that the brain is challenged in new ways, uh, whether it's learning a new language, playing an instrument, uh, going to uh, interesting places when you travel around the world, um, arranging your schedule, organizing uh, get-togethers with friends, all of these, uh, jo you know, joining uh, clubs and community service, all of that is high-level intellectual activity. It's the important to avoid just, uh, say, spending your time in front of a TV set, and uh, that tends to uh, the brain is much less active under those conditions. You really want to put new challenges in front of yourself all the time. The fourth uh, item is, um, it doesn't always apply to everybody, but it, it, it applies to most of, it, most of us, and that is to reduce stress. Uh, stress, especially chronic stress, is not good for the brain. So if um, uh, the, the really dramatic examples are a person maybe uh, Person's losing their home, or they're going through a divorce, or, or a child is sick. 
these are long-term chronic stressors that um, really um, do need attention. But some of us feel, um, you know, pretty significant stress uh, for other reasons. Maybe your job isn't going as well as it should. Maybe there's conflict with your coworkers or the boss. Um, it's really important to get a handle on these uh, stressors, and this is why um, techniques uh, such as yoga and other techniques um, are very, very uh, useful for as a risk reduction measure. The fifth, the last one, is uh, the only one on the list that may be a surprise for some people, and that is the importance of having friends. Um, having friends, having a strong social milieu, having people around you that you can interact with in uh, many different ways. You know, you might like to talk about sports with one person and talk about uh, romance with another person, and you just, you really have, uh, people have um, very complex social networks. And um, the complexity of those networks and the support they provide us is actually very good for the brain. The data is very, very strong that uh, people with successful aging often have a strong social network. So there you have it. And uh, our program is uh, geared toward identifying uh, the various risks that people have and to uh, introduce to them a program of risk reduction. That was great. Uh, all of the medical and the lifestyle was very simple and and yet uh, very important for all of us. I'm wondering, as you're talking about that, so would you say that if you have more friends on Facebook, less chance of a uh, of a dementia in your future, or not a no. condition? No. Okay. Um, Let's... So yeah, I'm glad you asked that because. Um, uh, What's more important than the number of friends uh, is the quality of the friendship. So if um, I, I think there are situations where one person may have only one very, very close friend, maybe a spouse, maybe someone else, and that single individual is really sufficient to provide the kind of social exchange that is good for the brain. Other people, uh, I just have lots and lots of friends, but the very... Um, casual types of friendships in which you can, you know, generate large numbers of names on Facebook is uh, probably is not um, what we're talking about here. I'd like to move out of some of the science, put that on a back burner, and get philosophical for a moment. Although there's still science involved in this, we're we're made up of matter. We have molecules, and as you know, cells and synapses and neurons and many of these other things, and that's the matter part of us. But then we have a mind part. And I'm wondering where you, as a neuroscientist in research, have an understanding of what gives us consciousness from this matter. How do we get mind? Uh, Glenn, that is one of the most profound questions that neuroscientists uh, face. Um, there, um, there, there's a, there's a spectrum of views about this. Um, I would say that on one extreme lies um, scientists who are um, almost radically reductionist. That is, they would say that if we know enough about all the genes and all the molecules and all the synapses, and we put all of that together in the entire brain, which is made up of a hundred billion neurons and even uh, many times more synapses, and we learn how they're all organized and operate, 
then we would, uh, from all that knowledge, would uh, emerge an understanding of um, consciousness and the mind. Uh, and uh, the idea behind this is, is that you assemble um, you know, millions and millions of little pieces, and now suddenly this uh, concept of mind begins to crystallize. Uh, I have uh, a lot of reservations whether that indeed that kind of um, thinking will ever uh, lead to an understanding of the mind. I, I really think that more and more we're learning that um, uh, the uh, mind is more than the sum of the parts, and that the mind does emerge from the brain, that all of the substrates involved in the molecules and the genes and the synapses are absolutely essential components of the mind, and the mind cannot exist without them. But when you put all of it together, something else happens that is no longer um, uh, has um, no, no longer can be explained simply by just adding up 10 synapses and 100 genes or something like that. You have something that is really quite novel. And where um, I think the best way to, uh, to, to the best way to describe this uh, dichotomy, this paradox between brain and mind, is um, in, in, in the example I'll give you. Uh, you might, um, if if I um, uh, sh if, I, if I show somebody say a, a picture of an apple, I uh, and I look at their brain imaging, I can uh, predict that the apple will light up their, they will activate their visual cortex. That's, they're looking at something and there it is. And I would say that, uh, oh, you know, you, uh, you, you're, you must be uh, looking at the apple right now because I saw a material representation of that apple in the activity of your brain. So if you had closed your eyes, uh, it would go away. You, I, I know you're looking at the apple because the brain lit up in this visual location. Now let's let's uh, turn it around, and here's where the mind enters. Suppose I show you a uh, simply a picture of uh, the visual cortex, part of the brain that was lit up when I showed the person the apple. But this time, I only show you the picture of the activated brain. No apple, nothing. Just the activated brain. And I ask you. Um, um, I, I, and I ask uh, somebody, I say, here's a picture of somebody's visual cortex that's lit up. What is that person thinking? You, you don't know. That person, that, that same area of visual cortex will light up when a person is looking at an apple or looking at a pair of skis or looking at a famous work of art or perhaps simply looking at a red rectangle or looking at someone, a, a stranger. So. There, the, the, you cannot, the, the, the arrow here does not go both ways. That is, if I show somebody something and I see activation, then I know there's a relationship between what's going on in the brain and what's going on in the mind. But if I simply am looking at brain activity without knowing what the person is looking at or thinking, I don't know. I, there's no way I can know because now the what the brain is doing is something that is no longer uh, discernible by any patterns of synaptic activity or anything else. Um, 
people who are living in a in a cave uh, thousands and thousands of years ago were looking at the same at, at things very similar to what um, their, their brains the, the people that were living in a cave thousands of years ago had brains that are very similar to ours. Yet none of those people were looking at iPhones or computers. And our brain is continually able to process new visual information that our ancestors never even saw before and to use the same brain tissue over and over again to generate these um, images that uh, we call the mind. Hmm. So that I guess there would also be another way of looking at it, as you're talking about with the reductionist way, taking it down to the, to the molecule and the cell and the gene and working our way up. What about looking at it from the other point of view, going from the most spiritual and the most deep meditative mind and seeing uh, people that, like the Dalai Lama, a number of these other gurus that have moved into enlightenment studies. Would there be another way of trying to figure out that connection from going from the mind in the other direction? Am I making uh, I that clear? Yeah, um, I, I think there are. Those are very, very interesting approaches, and um, where we have to, um, you know, have perhaps a little bit of a discussion, I think, when uh, or a little bit of a dialogue between people that are on the neuroscience side and people that are a little bit more oriented towards spiritual questions, is um, this point that I emphasized at the beginning. I think it's the view of neuroscientists that the mind uh, emerges from the brain, and that without the brain, there would not be a mind. The, um, the, the, uh, another point of view is that the mind is sitting out there somewhere in a way that's independent of the brain. That is much more difficult for a person with a scientific orientation to understand. Um, doesn't mean it's wrong. It just means that um, we need more dialogue around this question. Would you, say, would you say that, for example, even talking about, say, radio waves, right now there's, there's a country western station playing and there's a, a classical music station playing and a rock station playing, and maybe we're not hearing any of it, but then when we move our tuner, we can get into one of them. Maybe the brain and all of that matter has to do with some kind of a receiver and a tuner, and that philosophy or concept of it's out there and now we just have to tune into it. I think those kinds of metaphors are, you know, very attractive. And, um, but they, they generally emanate, uh, from some, whether it's, uh, you know, a radio or an antenna or a brain, they do, uh, em emanate from a material source. And that is, um, mm. where I think, uh, the debate is sometimes centered. Um, That's a good point. Very good point. Do you think if, you know, in many cultures, we look at death differently. We do a lot of mourning in Western cultures, and others, other cultures may celebrate or look at things differently as we treat that. I wonder, just from a philosophical point of view, if we looked at our aging and mental deterioration as just part of a process. When we start out as a baby, we're a young baby with no memory, really, 
And then when we get to a certain point, maybe we're, we become an old baby with no memory. And then we don't have to put all of this, as you say, stigmata on the process of the mental deterioration. Um, I, I think that is in some ways an enlightened way to think about it. Um, on the other hand, um, the, um, the, the way a baby is, of course, uh, learning is that they're like a sponge. Uh, everything that's coming in there is remembering all things very rapidly. Their, their language ability is growing and learning new words all the time. It's, it's just phenomenal, the growth in their synapses and their capacity. Um, the, that when an older person begins to decline and may uh, be interested in, say, stuffed animals again or something that we look to what we think of as being childish, um, that what the, the, of course, the biggest difference there is that that person's uh, brain is not a sponge anymore. It's not absorbing information. It's not learning new things. And this is why I think it's so important to, um, for elders to emphasize uh, quality of life. Because, um, of course, there's um, nothing more precious than our memories. And um, I think being able to uh, trigger memories in a person who may be losing some of their memory is very important to uh, give people the space to talk about their memories of, uh, say, if they were in the military or if they were, um, had a very uh, job that they want to talk about. And, and to really be able to discuss the old days, because that is... Um, something, a place where their memory may be a little bit more preserved than what's going on today. This was a great discussion, and I would love to have more discussions with you. I think the listeners would probably like to, to know a lot more about this and your continued research. I always ask my guests if they, through their wisdom and experience, have come up with a health tip that they individually know that we would all benefit from. You have something for us. Um, yeah. Well, you know, I think um, our my uh, health tips really center on uh, our lifestyle and medical uh, approaches to uh, keeping the brain healthy. And I would say, um, if, um, if if I'm going to distill some of that down into uh, 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 maybe one health tip, I think what really keeps the brain really active is. Um, Maintaining a person's curiosity. If you're curious about the world and other people, your brain will be active. Oh, that's great. I'm very grateful to my special guest, Dr. Ken Kosick, for sharing his wisdom and experience. I'd like to thank all of my teachers and all of the people that have healed me throughout my life. I look forward to visiting with you again next week as we explore another quadrant of the healthcare galaxy. And at this time, I wish you all optimal health. Thank you, Ken. Thank you. Bye-bye.